All right, what would it look like for a group of people with transformed character to come together? That's the question. So we've talked through this Inside Out series about uh, character development and about uh, spiritual growth. And we've, we've talked about your soul, your body, your will, your mind, all of these things. And now we're down to the very last couple of components. And so tonight we're, we're, we're talking about what is this group of people going to look like if we, if we walk through this process and are transformed inside out, then when we get together, what's that going to look like? And it should look like a group of people wholly devoted to spiritual formation of those inside as well as outside of the group. So it would be a group of people who would be committed to their own spiritual formation, right? And the spiritual formation of the people around them, but also conscious and aware and concerned about the spiritual formation of those outside the group that haven't begun the process. So basically it would be a group of people that are consumed by spiritual formation. That's what it would look like. That would, that would be a group of people with transformed character in the same place at the same time. And some things about this group of people that are worth noting. First of all, they'd be a diverse group of people because identification with Christ and this emerging community that grows out of a relationship with Him obliterates all other identities. Paul says in Colossians that it doesn't matter whether they're Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Christ is all in all. Those words don't really ring the way they should in us. If you were a first century uh, person, you know, that would just blow your mind. It would be you know, so the equivalent would be, the Apostle Paul would say to us today, is it, it listen, it, it doesn't matter, not only if, whether you used to be a Muslim, but what if you used to be a terrorist, or a homosexual, or, a, or whatever it is that would be most shocking. That's what Paul's driving at in this diversity. That this group of people, see, when your character is transformed, it has a profound impact on your identity. The way that you view yourself and the way that you view yourself in relation to the world around you. And so that's why that issue of identity has come up so many times in the course of this conversation. But it would also be a focused people. Possessing supernatural functions given by God solely for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service and building up the body of Christ until all look and live like Christ. So isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians? So when Paul talks about believers together, one of the things he says is that everyone is gifted. In the kingdom of God. Everyone's gifted in the body of Christ. But he also says 
explains what the purpose and nature of these gifts are. What are these gifts to accomplish? And they're specifically for the building up of this group. You see, for the, because they're concerned about the spiritual formation of themselves and those around them and those outside. And the most effective way for them to engage in this group is to operate in the giftedness that God has given them. And when they do that, the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that the knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect man, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, the results are unbelievable. It's amazing what happens. Now, the metaphor that I want us to think about tonight and really sort of focus on as a way to sort of talk this out would be a hospital. The best way to understand how this group of people would function is, in my opinion, to think about a hospital and to think about how a hospital functions and think about all the various components within a hospital. So in a hospital, there's a lot of things going on. Hospitals are busy places. And let's think about some of the things that are going on in the hospital. There are people in that hospital that are undergoing radical surgery. So when you're undergoing radical surgery, what's happening? Some problematic things are being removed from your life. And it's a very traumatic experience, isn't it? And these things that are being removed from your life oftentimes have been growing there for a long time. And as they were most of the time that they've been growing you didn't realize how problematic they were or even that they existed. And then when it came to your attention that what's been growing is a problem and needs to be removed, all of your focus and attention turns toward getting this problematic thing out of you, right? Or this situation resolved or corrected or whatever the case may be. Then you have some people that are in ICU. And people that are in ICU, basically, unless you, the only way you could spend more time in ICU than me would be you work in ICU, which we have a number of people in our fellowship that work in ICU. And so let me tell you about ICU. ICU is where people go when they are unable to uh, function on their own. They need assistance. They're in a very critical scenario where they need to be closely monitored and they need to have uh, a lot of different uh, technologies available to help them function because they're not strong enough to function on their own. Right? We got some people who are walking up and down the hallways with their butt showing out of their little thing, with the orderlies holding on to them. And they're taking their wobbly steps, and they're building up their strength because they've been bedridden. They're trying to, they're, they're on the road to recovery, but it's still a long and, and arduous road. They're going to need, they need assistance, they still need help, but they're not in ICU. 
And then you have people who are in what we would usually refer to as a, a rehab. They're people who are showing steady strength as they get ready to resume their ordinary lives. And so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're moving towards independence. They're moving towards exiting uh, you know, the need for constant care and oversight. But then there's other things that are going on at the hospital. You, you have, for example, uh, you need ambulance drivers. What do ambulance drivers do? They bring critically ill people to the hospital. So we need ambulance drivers in this scenario. We need... Uh, well, basically, what I want you to see is that within the context of the hospital, everyone's a caregiver. Everyone's a caregiver. They, everyone may not be able to be a caregiver at a, at a specific moment, but everyone is a potential caregiver or a caregiver or, or is ultimately going to be a caregiver. So it's not, it's not a hospital... Uh, in the context of what a modern hospital would function like, it would be more of a hospital, maybe a, a military hospital in the middle of a war zone or something like that, where everybody's going to have to pitch in and work and help and do their part. You see, because of course there's doctors and nurses, but every patient, once able, is expected to help care for those behind them in the healing process. So see, you're going to have people who maybe are in the, the, the rehab uh, area of the hospital. Well, in a spiritual hospital, they would be expected to function maybe as, uh, you know, what do they call them? Candy stripers or something like that. People who, to, you know, there's things that you can do. Maybe simple little things, but there are things that you can do. So they, would, they might go room to room and encourage those who, who are going through maybe what they just did. So the people that are recovering, who have left, uh, uh, who have had, say, open-heart surgery and have spent a day or two in ICU and now are in the room recovering, well, in a spiritual hospital, as you begin to recover, you would be expected to go back out and visit the rooms of all the people who either are about to have open-heart surgery and encourage them that, listen, it's not as bad as you think, or maybe it's worse than you think, but don't worry, you won't die. I made it through it because you just went through that. And then people, as they just come out, to say, hey, listen, I know, but it's going to get better, and this is how many days I felt like this, right? Doesn't that make sense? That everybody's participating in this process. It's, you're, not just, you're not just standing around expecting the specialists. They're not the only people doing the, the work. Everybody's pitching in. Everybody's working. And there's constantly new ambulances showing up and unloading people. And then there's people who are just walking in to the ER. Who through some mechanism in life, God's used some situation, circumstance, or people to reveal to them the sickness that they have. And so they're 
So you got loved ones bringing people in. You got ambulances bringing people in. You got people walking in. And the thing about it is, is that it's just constantly revolving process. And everybody that's coming in will eventually be somebody that serves within. And as more people, so it just keeps growing and growing and growing. It never shrinks. It grows. Right? Now here's the thing about a, a hospital. You know what hospitals don't do? Hospitals don't turn people away because they're too sick. You see, hospitals understand that their function is to care for people who are sick, no matter how sick they are, isn't it? See, that's one of the problems that we have today. That's one of the reasons why we don't want to function as a hospital, because we don't want to, we don't want to care for the really, really sick people. Can you be too sick for a hospital? No. Not until you're dead. Now let's think for a moment about some people who were really, really sick in the Bible. And how it wasn't too sick. I want you to think about Peter, the one who was the leader after Pentecost in the book of Acts. There was a moment when Jesus called him Satan. Called him Satan. Can you be sicker spiritually than the Son of God calling you Satan. I don't think you can. What about the Old Testament? What about when Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God, receiving the law? And down at the bottom, total chaos erupts. And who's leading all the idolatry and debauchery down at the bottom? Aaron. And multitudes of people lose their life because of his disobedience. It's a, it's a horrific stain and blemish on the moment. He's a huge disappointed appointment to, to Moses. And when the tabernacle is established, who is the person who has made the spiritual leader? Who is the first high priest? Aaron, can you be too sick for the hospital? Because you certainly can be too sick for the church today. There's not one of us sitting in this room who hasn't said, 
man, they're just gone way out there, too far, too gone, too. There's not one person in this room, including me, that hasn't said that. Is that true? What would we what would we look like according to scripture if we were if we were healthy? Well, I mean, there's a lot of places, but I think the most familiar, because we just talked about it a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, would be Philippians 2. That we would become blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. I mean, what's astonishing about that passage of Scripture is that it's a possibility. That's what blows my mind. Is that it's a... It's an, the opportunity to be that is there. So, is this the church that we commonly see today? I mean, you don't need me to answer this for you, do you? So then the question is, well, what do we see today? If the church is anything today, what is it? What word would we describe it with? I think this is the word. And this isn't new, by the way. This has been going on for a long time. Long, long time. Distracted. Look at Leith Anderson's words. He says, while the New Testament speaks often about churches, it's surprisingly silent about, ma- about many matters which we associate with the church structure and life. There's no mention of architecture or pulpits or links or, thank God for that, in typical sermons or rules for having a Sunday school. Little is said about style of music or order of worship or times of church meetings. There are no Bibles, denominations, camps, pastors' conference, or board meetings. Those who strive to be New Testament churches must seek to live its principles and absolutes, not reproduce the details. But what details? Where do we get all the details that we reproduce? We just get them from the people before us. And where do they get them? From the people before them. And you know what you think is right? Is whatever you grew up around. That's what you think. That's not what I think because I didn't grow up around any. But if I would have, that's what I would think. I think it might be my greatest advantage as a pastor. Maybe what I'm most grateful for is that I didn't grow up in the church. Because I feel like it's helped me tremendously. See, 
If we, why does the New Testament, why is it so silent about all these things? And the answer is, well, because those matters are not primary and they'll take care of themselves with little attention whenever what is primary is appropriately cared for. You see, if they, if they were important, God would have instructed us about them, wouldn't he? Well, sure. But they're not. And what happens is, we get distracted. We, we can come around and, and celebrate a passage like we studied last Sunday morning where we're going to forget what's behind us and we're going to look forward and focus on the prize. But is it the prize that we're focused on? Because what are we talking about when we're talking? What, what dominates our conversation when we're talking about things? And a lot, I don't think it's the prize very often. We should be asking ourselves, well, what are the principles and the absolutes that the New Testament gives us? The things that we need to focus all of our attention upon. It's not to say that everything else doesn't matter, but I think what the Bible would teach us is that if you focus on what does matter, then all the things below that in the food chain will sort themselves out. That's what the Bible would teach us. See, what happens is, is that to fail to focus on the principles and absolutes is to wander off into a state of distraction, which is where most local congregations actually are today. Just distracted, completely off track, and oblivious to the fact that they are. We have to guard ourselves. We have to be very vigilant that we don't wind up majoring on minors and allowing the priorities from the New Testament to disappear. See, when I, when I look around at what's going on around us, and when I talk to other people in other places and, you know, when I look and read and try to keep up with the Christian community at large of our day and time. You know, nobody thinks they're distracted. But my goodness. The things that they're investing their efforts and their time and their resources in are so far off the mark. And if you were with us when we uh, first, when the pandemic first hit and we first went into lockdown and everything got turned upside down, one of the things that the pastors were continually telling the congregation, what God was showing us, was that 
this was a great opportunity for us to stop and take some inventory. Ask ourselves, do we need to be doing all the things that we're doing? And what became very apparent to us very quickly is that many people within our congregation that we would consider to be extraordinarily healthy and strong don't know how to be. They only know how to do. Remember that? And so for once in my life, I was thankful for social media, even though it was painful. I was thankful for it because it was such a, it was like a stethoscope on all of your hearts. See, when, when we look at most religious gatherings, they're mistaking the vessel for the treasure. That's really the danger. See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See, the danger is, is that we would mistake the vessel for the treasure. I want you to think about that for a minute. See, Paul obviously is talking about the physical body, but the, the imagery and the picture and the the warning, the spiritual warning there is crystal clear. Crystal clear. So when you think about things like, you know, well, what kind of a church do you go to? Well, you think of what the denomination of the church is. And why do you go to that denomination of church? Is it because you have always went to that denomination of church? Or is this a, a new denomination of church to you? And what does all of that mean? I mean, are we... as denominations mostly formed from and known by what we're against? Or is it about what we are? I just want you to think about some things. And, and when, especially when you're uh, having conversations with other people and uh, you know I'm, one thing that I've, I've worked really hard to do is I really try to be very sensitive because we have a lot of people who uh, come into this fellowship from other denominations and I work really hard to be sensitive to that 
Because I realize that that's a difficult transition. Because, you know, you've grown up your whole life a certain way. And then suddenly the Spirit of God, through whatever mechanism He uses, uses some mechanisms to begin to move you and shape you. And really, you know, I would think that, you know, you're not here. I mean, I'm not being negative. I'm just trying to be transparent. You're not here for the music. Because if you were here for the music, you could just go to a charismatic church. And have a concert every Sunday. So it's really not the music, is it? It's not the production. It's got to be the Word of God. It has to be. Because it's hard, right? It's hard. And you've even been, been frustrated sometimes. And I understand. If I were you, I'd be frustrated too sometimes. And you think to yourself like, man, you ever brought some, invited somebody to church, brought them here? And they're like, you know, it was good, but man, it was long. Why don't we just trim it down, lighten it up, be, make it way more palatable? We could do that. But you see, and you know what? More people would come. That's not what we should do. That's not what we should do. That's, a, that's changing the vessel. That's attracting people to the vessel. We want to attract people to the treasure, not the vessel. So you have to put the treasure out there on display and those who will be drawn to it that's how you know those are the ones that the spirit of god is working in and those that aren't there there's many people that aren't interested in i mean you know so i wonder sometimes do you realize all the things that go on see a lot of you you know you you it's a good thing you don't have eyes in the back of your head this past sunday i ran two people out the back door right out the door I mean, they just huffed up. They got mad. They didn't like it. Sunday before that, somebody stormed out mad. I'm not here to be your friend. It's the treasure. Look, if you, if you don't want the treasure, I want, I want to have a, a place where if you're not interested in the treasure, then you can't get out quick enough. Because if you have a bunch of vessel seekers in a room, you're going to have a whole bunch of problems and headaches. That's not what it's supposed to be. See, 
You know what? You know what? You know what ruins a hospital? You know what would make a hospital totally ineffective? Is if they started functioning like a hotel. They started housing healthy people. So then when the sick people came, you had to turn them away. Because you, you're really not equipped for that. See, this is a hospital. So we hold the treasure up. And people that are genuinely sick, that the Spirit of God has shown them that they're sick. See, when they see the treasure, they'll be drawn to the treasure. And the treasure is what heals them. So just understand that, you know, we recognize the challenges that it presents. Believe me. You have no idea the, how uh, hard it is to not make it easy for people that you love. Does that make sense? You know that feeling that you feel, those of you that are, Parents, you know that feeling that you feel when you want so bad to give your kids what they want? It's so hard to tell them no when you can tell them yes. Like, it's hard to say no when you can say yes, right? You know that feeling? Well, that's the feeling that I feel with you every day of my life. When I know no is what you need, but yes is what you want, and Satan wants, wants to... He wants to distract us constantly. See, the danger is that we would regard as essential and devote our attention to the effort to things that have to do with human historical contingencies that have attached themselves to individuals brought up in a certain way. Remember a couple weeks ago when I gave you a definition of legalism and, and how you need to be uh, thoughtful and, and wise and be able to discern what you're hearing when you hear people uh, talk about spiritual things. Or are they talking about, uh, you know, because if they're talking about form or, you know, they're talking about function, you've got to be able to discern that. See, think about it. If I only, if I only, uh, if I only come to your house when you cook a big meal, when you cook what I like, you know, I've said this before. What really royally ticks my wife off is when uh, my kids were teenagers. I'm, I'm wondering if this is going to go second round or not. We'll see if two more people can survive, but. When my first two were teenagers and, and uh, they would say, uh, Mom, I'm hungry. And she's like, I'm cooking dinner. And then they would say, what is it? She would get so aggravated. Ooh, that would just steam her up. Like, I'm like, never ask, what is it? Never. That's just, I mean, how do you not get this? It's just a bad question. 
Well, how do you think God feels? See, when you, when you, you, you want, you like church when it's your way, or you sing when it's a song you like, or you, you know, focus when it's a topic you're interested in, or when you, see, here's the thing, if the goal is, is every single time the doors open, the treasure's on display. Now, whatever else is going on around it can be whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. Just make sure the treasure's on display. And then those that God's drawing to Himself will be drawn to the treasure. And you'll see Spiritual formation happen. Because what forms you spiritually? The treasure. Not the vessel. You see, the vessel, what does the vessel look like? Well, everybody, see, has a different vessel in their head. It's decorated with different songs and different traditions and different ideas and different ways and different things. And so that's whatever, so when you think of church, you think of, you think of whatever vessel comes to your mind. See, the thing is, these contingencies, they're dear to us. And we mistake them for treasure. The treasure of the real presence of Christ in our midst, even trying to urge them upon others as essential to salvation. Now, I know that may seem like a stretch, but that's not a stretch at all. Now, remember, when we first got into, two weeks ago, when we got into Philippians chapter 2, chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul said, Beware of the dogs, the evil workers. And they were people who were promoting the vessel. He called them mutilators. There's no difference. There is not one shred of difference between who Paul is talking about in Philippians 3.2 and people who talk about their musical preference. No difference. Or the temperature. Or how comfortable or uncomfortable the seat is. Or how, whatever it is, you pick. Or the people that think people ought to dress a certain way when they come to church. It's the same. You, you know who the dogs and the evil workers were? They were people who were just promoting their tradition. That's all they were promoting. Circumcision was their tradition. They weren't denying Jesus. They weren't denying anything that Jesus said or taught. They were simply adding their tradition. So what kind of clothes should people wear when they come to church?
Should there be certain ministries in the church? Well, what are those ministries that should be in the church? Do you have like a little list in your head of ministries that should happen or should not happen or how they should be? Or there's specific time that church should meet? Way that it should be? It should it should have some some form or function in some certain way. What about supernatural things? I mean, are, are miracles allowed to happen in church? Or are we only going to study about them? But we're not going to allow them or experience them. What about that? I'm just trying to get you to think about things. And on and on it goes. And, and so, and, and what happens is maybe, maybe you've been exposed to things in the past in, in church that made you uncomfortable, that were unbiblical and made you uncomfortable, but now you've overreacted in the other direction. And you're ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture because of some bad experience that you had. What about that? I mean, all these are just questions, things that we should think about, things we should ask ourselves. See, these vessel matters, they don't bring anyone to Christ's likeness. And it doesn't matter which side you stand on. You see? They're, the only thing that makes a person Christ-like is the treasure. That's it. That's the only thing. And people that are really passionate about their vessel issues actually think that those vessel issues are advancing Christ-likeness. Which is absurd. It's totally absurd. So sometimes I say things to, to you know, try to get under your skin a little bit so you'll, you know, think about it. Because I know that not all of you will... will get on an airplane with me and go halfway around the world. And see, because if you do, I, don't, I won't have to teach you any of this. You, you would already know this. Because you would see people operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, worshiping the same God that you worship in the most way, foreign way to you imaginable, and you would realize, huh. But if you don't see that, then you can get deceived into thinking all kinds of crazy things. See, Christians today routinely are taught by example and word that it is more important to be right than it is to be Christ-like. Now, is it important to be right? Yes. You don't want to be wrong, but is it is being right 
preeminent? No. Being Christ-like is preeminent. Yes. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus said in, uh, you can write this reference down, in Matthew 23, 15. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You travel across the sea and the land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What are they, what were the, what were the Pharisees uh, conveying to the, their proselytes? Rightness. Information. They were trying to make people right. See, for example, many people believe that the church's basic goal is to get as many people as possible ready to die and go to heaven. See, that bugs you, doesn't it? If you read your New Testament, is that the goal of the New Testament? That is not the goal. Is, is that a bad thing? No. But it's not the thing. That's the problem. What you need to know is what is the thing. You need to fixate your life around what is the thing. See, in fact, the Bible's goal is for us to get heaven into people. That's the goal. But if we get distracted then we're going to create groups of people who will think that they're ready to die, but clearly they'll not be ready to live. See, Christ said that He came to give us life and life abundantly. He didn't say, I'm here to give you a ticket to eternity. That's not what He said. I wonder why that is. Think about it. In order for the hospital to function properly, what would be, think about the perfectly functioning spiritual hospital. You would have a constant inflow of very sick people. But you would also have a constantly growing team of people equipped to meet the needs of the sick people that are coming in, right? And as the team, the more people that come in, then the more the team grows and on. And so the, the, the two always work in tandem with each other. 
one never outpaces the other because the more that come in, the more that eventually get healthy and start helping out, right? And so what happens is, is now what would happen if everyone that got healthy checked out and left the hospital and went home and just, I'm healthy, I don't need the hospital anymore, and just lived out the rest of their life in their living room watching TV. Then you have a problem because now you can't handle the amount of sick people that are coming in. So you have to start locking the doors. You have to start narrowing down the, you know, and you... you so pretty soon, if people don't stay and, and participate in what's going on in the hospital, pretty soon what's inevitable to happen is that the only people you admit in are people who really don't need a hospital because that's the only people you're equipped to handle. Which, in my opinion, is most local churches today. When the point of the New Testament is to spiritually form people so that they come into the hospital, get healthy, grow into Christ-likeness, their character is transformed, so that they can live. Because what was God's intention for each of those? See, every, think about it. What is, what is the great physician's plan? And purpose for every sick person that rolls in on a gurney. Is it for them to, is his ultimate plan for every person for them to get well? Nope. That's not his ultimate plan. That, that's his plan, but that's not his ultimate plan. His ultimate plan is for every person who arrives on a gurney and is wheeled into that hospital, his ultimate purpose and plan is for them to live and function as a supporting member of the hospital staff helping the people that are constantly coming in sick, right? To live, not to die. That's the whole point. I mean, there, there's so many... Bizarre things that go on in what's called a church today that it, it's crazy that I could even ask a question like this, but you'd have to. Is it possible to be a Christian without being Christ-like? Is that even possible? Now, I want you to think about what the, the world that we've created we create a spiritual world where, listen, if you were having a conversation with a typical church-going person in the Bible Belt, especially if you were having a conversation about somebody that they were related to or loved deeply, it would be absolutely plausible for you to have a conversation whereby they say, well, you know, I mean, they're... they're 
you know, they're not in church and they don't read their Bible and they live their life contrary to the teaching of God, but thank God they're saved. Thank God they made that profession. Thank God they got baptized. Thank God they're a member of the church. Huh? I mean, where the narrow gate reality is going to hit like a sledgehammer is the Bible Belt of the United States of America. Good gracious alive. Stop asking or thinking about a person in terms of whether or not they're a Christian. Just say, are they Christ-like? That answers your question. So whoever it is you're thinking about that you've been wondering if they're saved or not, but your heart is always getting you to try to just, are they Christ-like? Is there Christ-like tendencies in their life? Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they're, uh, you know, where they need to be. But there is going to be evidence. Now, I put as your last blank because the rest of the last few minutes, I just want you to think with me. So if we're not careful, we're going to end up with converts and not Christians. See, what we don't want to do is we do not want to ever become a church that's not a hospital. We don't ever want to do that. And we have to be careful. We all have to be conscious of the temptation to go there and to be that. And we all have to realize what we're doing and what our role is and what we're doing. So here's what I want you to just think about. You can write these things down if you want to, but I just want you to think about it. Is the God of the Bible a God of technicality or substance? Just ask yourself that question. I mean, is He a God of technicality or substance? So here's what I mean by that. Honestly and truthfully, do people go to heaven because they have done certain things, said certain things, done certain things, prayed a certain prayer, claimed a certain thing? Or does really your eternity hang not in a technicality, but in the substance of who you are? So let's be very careful that we don't think about God like a lawyer. Heaven is not predicated on a technicality. Listen, nobody is going to make an insincere profession and squeak in. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody's going to beat the system. Nobody. Nobody ever has, nobody ever will. 
And there will be people that externally, a lot of other people didn't think met the criteria, but will be ushered straight in to a seat at the feast because of the substance of who they are. So let's just think about this for a second. Converts followed doctrines and denominations. But disciples follow the life and teaching of Jesus. They look like, you know how you know a disciple? They look like the treasure. They don't look like the vessel. And you need to know the difference between the treasure and the vessel in your own life and in the lives of the people around you. And so that as you're thinking about discipleship, as you're thinking about D group, as you're thinking about things like that, that you got to make sure that you're thinking clearly here because we're not replicating the vessel. It's the treasure. See, converts attend church. Disciples are the church. And lastly, converts are filled with knowledge and information. Disciples are filled with devotion and love because of it should be who they know. You see, disciples have information. But it's not the possession of the information that, that differentiates the group. It's not even the rightness of the information. It's what does the right information do? You got that? That is very important to understand. A disciple, as a disciple learns information about the treasure, they grow in the way they emulate the treasure. Converts don't do that. They don't do that. So next week what we're going to do is we're going to finish this series up and we're going to talk about this process of discipleship. We're going to just break it down. Just step by step and, and show you what, how does this look. And understand, my heart's desire is that you would just... Be with me and the other pastors and the, the elders of this fellowship and pray. Pray that God will protect us. Will protect us. So we don't lose sight of the treasure and we focus on the vessel. We want to display the treasure. Every time you open your Bible, you want to see the treasure. Every time you go to D group, you want to see the treasure. The treasure. The treasure. You want to look like the treasure. Okay? Amen.